From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today on Lake Effect, we'll explain how candidates in Milwaukee can run for more than one office in a local election. Then we'll learn about an effort at UWM to help students overcome challenges and close graduation gaps. This means really ensuring that all students, regardless of race, ethnicity, income, can be retained and graduate at the same rate. Plus, we'll speak with Cheryl Blue, who was honored with a Unity Award for her efforts to revitalize the 30th Street Industrial Corridor. Our main goal is to empower the people, to engage the people, to be a part of the process, to rebuild this area of the city for the people that live here that so deserve it. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Milwaukee's primary election is two weeks away, and when voters go to cast their ballot on February 20th, they might notice one candidate's name show up multiple times. Aisha Griffin is running for mayor of Milwaukee, Milwaukee's District 3 Common Council seat, and Milwaukee County Executive which is perfectly legal, but there's some nuance to how it could shake out based on the election results. To help explain how candidates can run for more than one seat in a local election, Lake Effect's excret Nunez is joined by Brenna Gadar, a staff attorney at the University of Wisconsin Law School. In the city of Milwaukee, what legally allows candidates to run for more than one office in the same election? So there is a Wisconsin statewide law that allows candidates to appear on the ballot for more than one office in the same election, but specifically it's only for local nonpartisan offices. And so that includes offices like county executive, county supervisor, and all municipal offices. So that includes mayor, alderperson, and other municipal roles. And so say a candidate who ran for more than one office in an election is ultimately elected for two or more offices. Can that candidate choose to hold more than one office at one time? Sometimes, yes, which I think is surprising to a lot of people. It really depends on the offices, though. There's sort of this background concept of compatibility of offices. And if two offices are incompatible, you can't hold them at the same time. Can you kind of elaborate more on what an incompatible office would be? Yes. So incompatibility generally exists where basically the duties of the two offices would be in conflict in some way. And there's different ways for this to happen One is if one office you would be supervising the other office, it would be sort of counter to public policy for you to hold both offices or in a lot of elected body situations. So if you're on the common council, you have the power to set the salary or set the job duties for a lot of city offices. And so generally you're not allowed to hold council seat as well as city seat where you have the power over basically what you would be getting paid or what you would have to do um, because there'd be concerns about sort of a conflict of interest there. That makes a lot of sense. So it seems like it's a little bit of some 
checks and balances. Yeah, there's there's a desire to to not have people have the potential to abuse their position or there's also a large number of local government positions where your duties just might conflict with each other. So you might be responsible to a certain district in your role as an alder and you might be responsible to a different group or a different supervisor in a different role in the city or county. And so to be more specific, can someone hold an office with the city and also hold another office with the county at the same time? Yes. So this is actually a state statute that likely allows a county supervisor to also be a member of the city's common council. So you can be both on county board and on the city council. There is some ambiguity in the statute, and I don't know how often it's been interpreted or applied, but it does seem to allow for people to be both on the county board and on the city council. And there are there are some Wisconsin attorneys general from the early 1900s who have explicitly said that the two offices of county board supervisor and alderman are not incompatible, so that those are compatible offices and that you can hold both of those. That's really interesting. I find that surprising. Yes, I did too. <laughs> and so say maybe you're elected to a higher position as the mayor for the city. Can you at that point hold any other office within the city or the county level? So if you're elected mayor, you, I think, would be unable to hold pretty much any other city office because it would be incompatible. So explicitly, there is a case talking about somebody running both for mayor and for alderman, and they considered that those offices would be incompatible. And in the case, they concluded that if an alderman was elected to both alderman and mayor positions, they could choose between the two offices, but they wouldn't be able to hold both offices. And one one piece to add to is a lot of this is laid out in state statutes of exceptions to this incompatibility piece. So there are a few exceptions, including volunteer firefighters, EMS practitioners, uh, people who you kind of want there to be a larger body of people who can can serve in those roles. And so there are some exceptions to this, um, but it really is the overall idea is to have people not end up in situations where they have conflicting duties and conflicting interests and responsibilities. And that makes sense. Well, Brenna, thank you so much for speaking with me today and helping make sense of this election process. You're welcome. Thanks for talking. Brenna Gadar is a staff attorney with the State Democracy Research Initiative at the University of Wisconsin Law School. She spoke with LegEffect expert Nunez. Aisha Griffin gave a statement to WUWM about her decision to run in multiple races, and you can find it at wuwm.com. While you're there, fill out our election survey. What you tell us will help inform the election stories that you hear on LegEffect and WUWM. As a part of WUWM's election coverage, we're answering your questions, and we've received a lot of them about what's going on with redistricting. Every Tuesday, you'll hear a conversation on Lake Effect that looks at the latest developments with redistricting, and we answer some of the specific questions that you've asked. 
At wuwm.com, you'll also find our live redistricting blog, where we'll be sharing the latest developments along with our series of redistricting conversations. College degree, in general, raises a person's earnings over their lifetime, but the path to college graduation isn't easy. Students face financial, academic, and administrative hurdles. Low-income students and students of color are even more likely to get tripped up by these challenges, and it shows in graduation rates. In 2020, UW-Milwaukee and other area colleges committed to closing graduation gaps as a part of an initiative called Moonshot for Equity. The schools partnered with education consultant EAB to make a path to graduation easier. WUWM education reporter Emily Files wanted to check in on the changes UWM has made. To find out how things are going, she speaks with Associate Vice Chancellor Phyllis King, who's leading the Moonshot for Equity efforts at UWM. First of all, can you tell me about the commitment UWM made with Moonshot for Equity and why that commitment is so significant? Yeah, so the Moonshot for Equity, I think, is perhaps the most significant action we could take at this time to address student success in higher education. Milwaukee and southeastern Wisconsin really continue to rank among the worst regions for educational attainment uh, for people of color specifically. And, you know, we know also know that we have workforce shortages for jobs that are requiring higher education. So we know the graduation rates are, uh, there's a lot of disparities in those as well. So the Moonshot for Equity really can address all of these challenges. It really is about kind of breaking down uh, barriers, perhaps structures that we have in place uh, and more institutional structures and accepting the students that we have in and promoting their success. This means really ensuring that all students, regardless of race, ethnicity, income, uh, can be retained and graduate at the same rate. So we currently now have a 51% six-year graduation rate, and there there is a gap of 11%. So we are looking at closing those gaps and similar uh, to other institutions. We're seeing good results. It's been three years. Um, We have to stay the course. We have learned uh, from other institutions, and one of them that's highlighted many times is Georgia State University, where they implemented best practices to completely close the achievement gap. So we can learn from them, and we are learning from them um, how to do the same. So let's get into some of the changes that UWM has made. One of them has to do with the holds that are placed on students' accounts uh, that prevent them from enrolling in classes because of unpaid balances or unfinished paperwork. What changes were made there? Yeah, we surprisingly have never uh, really done a complete audit of our holds across our campus. Um, We put holds on students' records for many different Uh, and actions for many different reasons, and it could be for parking or athletics or um, certainly tuition um, and all of that. But um, in looking at those holes, they they became very numerous. And so one of the best practices that EAB suggested was hold reform. Let's reform our holds. Let's take a look at each one of those holds. Do they still make sense? They're prohibiting students from re-enrolling for next semester. So we took a look at our holds. We audited. We did an audit, a complete audit across campus of all the holds. How many holds do we have? Um, Do they still make sense? Are they legacy holds? And come to find out, we needed to clean up our act around holds. And one thing we did know is that 
that our BIPOC students certainly um, represent around 34% of our campus, but really about 46 or 7% of the population of our financial holds. So in taking a closer look at that, um, several actions were made that really have been transformative, institutionally transformative. And one of them is um, we're creating a policy for, we created a policy for holds. So no one can just put a hold on uh, for, for any reason on a student's record. So we has to go, we have to go through a committee. It told us something about our practices. And again, going back to the institutional barriers, this is an institutional barrier we're putting on the students. And do they make sense? Um, and so we raised our uh, threshold for a hold to also $1,500. What, what was it before? I, I think it was around 500. So we're saying 1500 is the limit, is the threshold for, for holds. And students less than 50, owing less than 1500 can still go ahead and register. So we raised that threshold. And interestingly enough, we can also now take a look at those students that do have holds and then go further investigating why and how we can help them, which leads into the second best practice around retention grants. Um, can we help them? Is it something that's preventing them from graduating in the last semester? And if that's the case, how can we help them get across that finish line? And it may not take a lot of funds. So talking about the holds, um, now if a student owes $1,500 or more, that's when a hold is placed on their account. Um, and as you mentioned, another new practice that UWM has been using to try to help students is uh, offering retention grants to uh, students who have financial need and um, are maybe close to finishing college, but um, might have some financial barriers. So what has happened with those retention grants and how many students are, have those gone to? So in the first year of the Moonshot for Equity, we were able to do a pilot study where students who were eligible for retention grants and primarily trying to at least prioritize those, getting them across the finish line to graduation. So if they were close to graduation, owed some funds, more than 1500 if we could give them that extra funds, would it make a difference? Um, and it, it certainly did. We did have enough actually to sort of randomize the students that um, needed some funding uh, and some of those retention grants. And so therefore we had a control group. And what really was great about that was we were able to do this sort of this pilot study to say, it didn't completely close the um, equity gap uh, by distributing retention grants. So in other words, those students, underrepresented minority students and, and, and none were able to um, graduate at the same time or are retained at the same uh, rate. So we know that retention grants work um, with that success we received a significant donation, 2.1 million from uh, a philanthropist who said, um, please, you know, work up a plan to, to make this happen. So we have uh, this fall and will this spring be uh, funding students who are eligible. Um, and those are students who are degree seeking. And we're really starting to prioritize, again, the completion grants and the continuation grants but we're able to use those funds this fall um, and into spring. And we're really interested in seeing what the graduation rates are going to be this next year um, using those funds. How many students have received retention grants? So to date, I believe 617 students have received retention grants. 
So another um, change that UWM has been working on as part of this effort is in the advising model, making the uh, counseling of students more proactive rather than reactive. So what changes have happened there? Yeah, I mean, that's been an amazing change, um, and it's powerful use, really powerful use of technology. So EAB has a technology platform called Navigate 360. It is a rather sophisticated um, platform. We call it our student success management system. Um, And it connects our students with faculty, with advisors, and with um, the resources that they need, that students need on campus to succeed. Um, We can create schedules, student appointments with support staff, or they can receive notices about their academic performance in order to stay on track to graduation. Um, It is a real powerful mechanism. It it has predictive analytics built into it. We can predict people's or students and advise them in a much more intelligent way about um, their path to success. And we can text message. So the communication between advisors is no longer, we'll get back to you in 24 hours or 48 hours or this or that. It's more immediate. We don't have to wait until there's a, there's a red flag on a student's grade or issues that they have. It's actually, we can be proactive about it and we can message students and we can create what we call campaigns. If we know that certain students in this pathway are not succeeding, we can dig into the data analytics to say, why are students, you know, having these issues in this, in this pathway, in this course, or an issue on campus um, at all. So we can connect those much more immediately with all the units across campus and get them more immediate help. What do you feel like are the biggest challenges for UWM to realize this goal of closing achievement gaps or equity gaps? We certainly have financial challenges, um, just generally overall. Um, But I will say the people that we do have are the most caring and the most student-centric and are uh, very effective in the use of the technologies um, that we do have. Um, I think what we need to do is uh, continue to uphold our commitment uh, to closing equity gaps. Um, and that means stay the course, but um, I think we're we're well on our way. I am excited to say that, you know, with within these this last three years, it's been a, a tremendous lift, but there, everybody's been on board with it. Uh, you know, people are very, um, are very drawn to the vision um, and, and wanting to do better for, for our students. And, you know, we've seen, this in our graduation rates. Um, you know, we have experienced a 5.8% increase in our six-year graduation rate for all freshmen. Uh, we've also seen, um, you know, an 8.4% increase of graduation rates for our African-American students and, and a 9.9% increase in six-year graduation rates. So the graduation rates are rising and that's that's tremendous. Um, I think we have to stay the course and I think it's every day um, is looking at um, how can we best serve the students that we have. Phyllis King is Associate Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs at UWM. She spoke with WUWM's Emily Files. Coming up next, we'll learn what new renewable energy developments could be happening in Wisconsin this year. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
You're listening to Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Renewable energy continues to grow here in Wisconsin. Things like wind power, solar from big farms in rural areas, or even on urban rooftops are all generating more sustainable energy. Advocates say using more renewable energy is key to reducing pollution and climate change. To learn about last year's solar developments and get a look at the renewable forecast for this year, WUWM's Chuck Kornbach is joined by Sam Dunaisky. He's executive director of Renew Wisconsin, a nonprofit that promotes renewable energy. Last year, Wisconsin developers and utilities added around 800 megawatts of new solar. So those are projects that were completed, constructed, and interconnected. And the Public Service Commission approved another 1,300 megawatts of solar. So those are projects that will likely uh, come online here in the next couple of years. Uh, This was a little bit of a step down in 2022, for instance. Developers added 1,400 megawatts of solar, which came online. But this year, we already have 1,700 megawatts at the Public Service Commission awaiting approval. And I should ask uh, for a reminder of how many homes can be powered by one megawatt or 1,000 megawatts? What's the standard again? You know, last year, 800 megawatts of solar came online. So that would be roughly 135,000 Wisconsin homes. Why are we seeing this growth overall, even though the numbers may have dipped a little last year? Why are we seeing this growth in utility scale solar? Well, to put it quite frankly, solar is the most cost-effective form of electricity that we can generate right now, cheaper than gas, cheaper than, certainly much cheaper than coal. Um, The one difference would be um, wind power can sometimes be a little bit more cost-effective as well. But for Wisconsin, solar is the most cost-effective electric generation form right now. And what about individual homeowners that want solar on their roof or they want to team up with some neighbors and do a so-called group buy? Um, Occasionally there's tension between uh, the uh, individuals and the utilities. Um, Do you expect still, though, some growth of the individual or group buy solar? Well, last year we saw a pretty significant drop-off in residential solar installations, not just in Wisconsin, but actually around the country. A big reason for that is likely, it sounds crazy, but it's actually the uh, renewal of those uh, federal investment tax credits. So for instance, in 2022, a lot of individual um, homeowners installed solar because those tax credits were on a schedule to be ramped down to get reduced in 2023. And then with the Inflation Reduction Act, those tax credits were increased back up to 30% and were extended uh, for a full 10 years. So that sort of impetus to install solar was not quite there last year. Now that we've had a little bit of a layoff, I think those residential installations will probably pick back up again in 2024. There's, again, some concern from individual homeowners or uh, smaller purchasers about uh, needing some help from the regulators. Yeah. So, for instance, last year, two utilities in their rate cases brought up changes to what's called net metering. It's how uh, individual home or maybe a small business 
how they get compensated for the excess electricity that they put on the grid. What came of that is, A, the Public Service Commission decided that was not the appropriate place to figure out those compensation rates, uh, but they also opened up a statewide investigation that will take place later on this year that will look at net metering as a whole across the entire state, which we think is really important because right now each different utility has its own net metering policies which means that for a rooftop solar company, they have to have many different uh, business models and proposals that they can be ready to give to a homeowner or to a business, depending on which utility territory they're in. So if we can get some standardization on net metering policies across the state, it's hopefully going to be able to bring down prices because it will essentially speed up how these rooftop solar companies can generate proposals and, and generate business for themselves and, and really for everyone across the state. You mentioned wind farms a little while ago. What is the status of wind farms in Wisconsin? There was a new one put up last year, was there not? And any others on the horizon? Correct. Last year, the Red Barn wind farm came online. That was 92 megawatts, uh, 28 turbines located in Grant County in the southwest part of the state. So far this year, three more projects are in the approval stage. Those projects would be the Uplands Wind Farm, which is a 300 megawatt project located in Iowa County. The Whitetail Wind Farm, which would be around 70 megawatts. The final numbers are not out on that yet. That would be a wind installation in Grant County. And then finally, the Badger Hollow Wind Project, which would be another 100 megawatt installation located partially in both Iowa and Grant counties as well. So there are not nearly as many wind projects um, at the utility scale in the approval stages as there are, say, for solar installations, but there's definitely more coming this year than we've seen in, in many years past. We should ask about the occasional pushback from some rural folks, uh, small town folks who don't want these larger scale renewable projects. What is your message to them? Well, there, there's definitely some pushback on some of these large scale projects. There's certainly some aesthetic arguments that folks who are opposed to these projects have put forward. But there are far more tangible benefits to these projects. Um, they create a lot of jobs, uh, both temporary and uh, permanent jobs within the industry. There are landowner payments that go to the host landowner to lease that space. You know, these developers are not purchasing this land. They're, they're leasing the land from the landowner so that land can actually stay in that family and they don't have to sell that land off. Um, there's also tax revenue that goes to the county and the local municipality for those uh, generation systems, those, those solar and wind farms. And it also, of course, uh, helps us to, to bolster and decarbonize our electric grid. And as we add, you know, more electricity, uh, you know, more users, as we use more electricity each individually, that bolstering of the grid is more and more important to create a more resilient electric delivery system. I've seen some solar farm developers offer to put in soil berms, you know, shielding, so the neighbors see less of that. Is that a common way to cope with some of the neighbor concern? 
typically it's, you know, developers can plant trees that will grow to kind of block the view of the solar panels. Um, obviously that doesn't work with wind turbines. Well, with the growth of renewables, uh, what's the status of needing more transmission lines in Wisconsin to carry uh, this renewable generated electricity? So MISO, which is our sort of regional Midwest grid operator, has approved three new transmission lines that are going to help more efficiently deliver energy across not only the state of Wisconsin, but actually the region as well, from where it's produced to where it's consumed. So this is really important for Wisconsin because right now we don't have access to some of that more cost-effective wind and solar energy that can be found in, say, Minnesota and Iowa. So we really need us residents here in Wisconsin to be able to import or bring in that electricity in the short term. In the long term, hopefully we'll be able to do those projects on our own and we'll be able to generate a lot more of our own capacity here in the state. But for right now, uh, that is really important. And even going forward as well, as we add more generation types to the system, as we add just more generation overall to the system, it's good for us and for other states to be able to kind of import and export that electricity as needed uh, when it's needed in different areas. State legislature seems to be talking about tax cuts, uh, redistricting, and so on, but is there anything in the next couple of months you're looking for from the Wisconsin legislature? You know, we would like to see, whether it's on the legislative side or on the regulatory side, policies that are going to drive or, or incentivize, right, renewables of all shapes and sizes so that everybody can participate in our renewable energy transition. They've got a bill before them about electric vehicle charging stations. Do you hope they finish up work on that and uh, the charging stations uh, start to get built, more of them? Yeah, this is a, a, maybe one of the more important bills that we've seen come through the legislature on the clean energy side in, in many years. Uh, currently, that bill is awaiting a full assembly vote. Um, it has essentially zero opposition to it right now. And what this bill would do is it would allow owners of public electric vehicle charging stations to charge drivers by the kilowatt hour. So that is different from how it currently works, which is typically a charging station has to charge a car by how much time it's there. And that doesn't really make sense, right? Because right now, if, if you have a gas-powered car, you drive up to the gas pump, you put the pump in, and then you, you know, you purchase, let's say, 10 gallons of gas or whatever it is. Charging by the kilowatt hour would essentially put electric vehicles on a similar path to how gas um, and gasoline vehicles uh, fuel up at this point. So it's really important uh, from that perspective, but it's also important, perhaps maybe even more important in my opinion, um, because it would allow Wisconsin to access the near $80 million in NEVI funding, the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Funding, um, that would go to not only building um, those charging stations and that charging infrastructure, but it would also go to the maintenance of that infrastructure for the next five years as well. So this means that charging stations can get built along major highway corridors, but also in areas where the private sector might not necessarily step up to install a charging station because maybe it's in a rural area 
and they you know they might not get as much business there. So this bill was is super important for Wisconsin to get those NEVI funds. You know, if we don't have charging by the kilowatt hour in place, those funds will actually go to another state. So this is why it's really important for us to get that federal funding so we can build up our charging infrastructure network. Sam Donaisky is the executive director of Renew Wisconsin. He spoke with WUWM's Chuck Kornbach. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen to us on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Coming up next on the show, we'll speak with one of the winners of this year's Unity Awards. You're listening to Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. This month's issue of Milwaukee Magazine features the five winners of the 2024 Unity Awards. The awards highlight people and organizations that are making Milwaukee a more inclusive and equitable place to live, work, and play. One of those winners is Cheryl Blue, the executive director of the 30th Street Industrial Corridor. Blue was recognized for her work to revitalize an area of Milwaukee's north side that was a hub for heavy manufacturing, but is now in a transitional period as many large manufacturers have left the area. Lake Effect Sam Woods speaks with Blue about her vision for her hometown. A lot of your work that you are recognized for revolves around ensuring that Milwaukee's renaissance includes the 30th Street Industrial Corridor, which is an area that was once a key industrial center in the heart of Milwaukee's north side. But before we get into the award and how it feels to be recognized um, in your, for your work in your hometown, I want to ask you, what is the 30th Street Industrial Corridor and what is your role in its renaissance? Sure. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. And I am honored to receive this recognition. Uh, the 30th Street Industrial Corridor is an area on Milwaukee's northwest side. It's about 880 acres of industrial infrastructure that hugs the railroad, and it crosses several neighborhoods, which include uh, Garden Homes, Amani, Metcalf Park, Sherman Park, Washington Park, all the way down to the near west side. Um, this area once housed Miller, Harley, Masterlock, Badger Meter, Briggs and Stratton, A.O. Smith, the Eaton Corporation, all of these manufacturing giants were centered in this area. And uh, because they there was a great need for workers, um, a lot of black people came from the South to take the jobs here. And this area once had one of the most prosperous black communities in the country at the time. Um, there was once a tagline that said, made in Milwaukee, because Milwaukee was such a 
powerhouse manufacturing giant in the country. Um, and because of the railroad and because of Lake Michigan, they were able to uh, transport these goods all over the world. Um, and so this is one of the areas of the city that really made Milwaukee great. And of course, um, due to deindustrialization and things like that, um, we've lost a lot of those companies. We've lost a lot of those jobs. You know, most recently, Masterlock closed down a factory on Center Street that was here for over 100 years. And so Milwaukee, like many other um, industrial cities, has had to rethink how do we rebuild this area uh, for the people that live here. Also, Milwaukee is about 40% Black. And so this is a significant portion of the city of Milwaukee. Milwaukee's Black population is pretty young. And so with all of this space here, industrial space, um, we talk about jobs a lot, but it's more than jobs. It's also housing, it's workforce development, it's education, it's um, a paradigm shift in the hearts and minds of the people that live here who honestly feel a little bit left out from Milwaukee's Renaissance. If you look downtown just a few miles away, you see all of the investment, you know, with the Pfizer, with Northwestern Mutual, you know, all of these um, cranes and buildings going up, which is really exciting. However, there's a significant portion of the city of Milwaukee um, that wants to experience that prosperity as well. And we're here to work to bring that about. You mentioned when it comes to the 30th Street, the area that is the 30th Street Industrial Corridor, that it has a a history of manufacturing. It has, you know, you mentioned that made in Milwaukee uh, stamp or, or kind of moniker or idea. A lot of that ties back to that 30th Street Industrial Corridor in our past, in our in you know in decades past. But as you mentioned, this is kind of a new age where it's while it still is called the you know the 30th Street Industrial Corridor, and there still is heavy. Um, manufacturing that is done in the area, it seems that a lot of your plans for the area um, are non-industrial in nature. And so I'm, I'm thinking of kind of trails and, and parks, like bike trails and parks that you're um, putting forward, uh, restoring homes in the Garden Homes neighborhood, and then, uh, you know, rumors of potentially a satellite campus for an HBCU. So a lot of kind of non-industrial elements are in the plan for this area's renaissance. Can you talk about what the future looks like for the 30th Street Industrial Corridor? Sure. Um, I have to say these are ideas that my brilliant team and the great residents in this area have come up with. And so we're working on many ideas and there are some concrete projects happening as well. Um, generally, when you look at industrial revitalization, people think of, you know, the land, the space, how are we going to redevelop these, the land um, area in the space. And the 30th Street Corridor is, a, is different than the other industrial areas in the city. You have the Menominee Valley, you have the Harbor District, you have um, Riverworks and other areas. But what's different about the 30th Street Corridor is that we are mostly residential. When you look at um, the former A.L. Smith campus that is in, um, you know, off 27th Street or 35th Street, right across the street are homes. People live there. And so when we think about how we revitalize this area of the city, it has to be different because it is a residential area for the most part. So um, 
Our office is located in the historic Garden Homes neighborhood. Garden Homes was built in 1921 by Mayor Daniel Hone. It was the first municipally sponsored housing cooperative in the United States. So it's on the National Historic Register as well as the State Historic Register. Um, there are historic homes in Garden Homes Park, many of which were abandoned during the recession. Um, and so the blight caused a lot of problems in the neighborhood. So the 30th Street Corridor, working with the city of Milwaukee, WIDA, and Sinair and other partners, um, did a housing project where we restored 24 homes, which include 11 historic homes around Garden Homes Park. So those homes are completed now. Uh, we're very excited. Most of them have residents, and we're continuing to work in the neighborhood to, um, as our saying goes, restore the soul of Garden Homes. So we're really excited about that project and we're continuing to move forward. We're also um, working with Rails to Trails, Norfolk Side CDC, uh, Havenwoods Neighborhood Partnership and Near West Side Partners on a 6.2 mile bike trail that will ride straight up the um, railroad on the 30th Street, which will connect to the Hank Aaron on the southern end and the oak leaf on the northern end. Um, we're also working on developing a fund to support emerging developers to build homes on the almost 3,000 vacant lots in the city of Milwaukee. So we have a lot of different um, projects that are going on. But again, our main goal is to empower the people, to engage the people, to be a part of the process to rebuild this area of the city for the people that live here that so deserve it. You mentioned investing in people, um, not just in you know industry or, or in businesses, but in, in the people that live in the corridor. And I can't help but imagine that that is that there's some personal motivation behind that because you uh, were born and raised in Milwaukee. You went to North Division High School just down the road from where you're working now. You were you were the people that you were that you're talking about in, investing in. Can you talk about your your roots in the area and how they inform the work that you do today? Sure. Um, like you said, I am born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in what is now the notorious 53206 neighborhood. Um, however, when I was growing up, it was a great neighborhood. Almost everyone on our block owned their homes. Um, we had, you know, pools and little leagues and basketball and gyms and boys and girls clubs and, you know, Moody Pool and great black businesses and libraries, all those things in the neighborhood. And so to see in my lifetime, the deterioration of the area is very unfortunate while also seeing, you know, all of the investment downtown, how far Milwaukee has come, you know, all of the wonderful things that are happening here. And, um, you know, I came again from North Division High School. I'm very proud of that. I love my alma mater um, and all of the residents in the neighborhoods there. And I think that we should also benefit from Milwaukee's renaissance and all of the wonderful things that are going on in this city. Because again, this is our home. When you talk about um, the greatness of Milwaukee and the, the heyday of all of the manufacturers, we were a big part of that. You know, we are taxpayers. This is our city too. Um, and so we should have all of those wonderful things 
for our people, the black people of the city as well. And I'm very passionate about that. Um, when I came home from Philadelphia uh, with new eyes to see Milwaukee and just to see all of the parks, you know, the lakefront, to be able to ride the bike trails and to see all of these wonderful amenities, I want those things in our neighborhoods as well. And the people do too. Talk more about that, because that you moved back to Milwaukee from Philadelphia about 13 years ago. Um, so you've had some time to kind of see your your hometown through new eyes. Tell me about that experience of kind of leaving home for a, for a good amount of time, seeing how other cities function, and then coming back and, and how that informs your work today. Well, Philly is awesome. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a big city. It's a major city. It's two hours from New York City to the north, two hours from Washington, D.C. to the south. Um, just lots of culture, lots of art, lots of great food, lots of great people, and middle-class Black neighborhoods <laughs> full of um, wonderful Black professionals who are very proud to be Black. And unfortunately, in Milwaukee, there's a brain drain. You know, a lot of times people don't see, you know, professional Black people don't see themselves being here because they don't see opportunities um, for themselves. They they want to be um, in places where they feel comfortable, where they feel that they can prosper, where they feel that their children um, can prosper. Because I'll be honest with you, Sam, I hate the whole, please accept me, I'm a human, I, I don't believe in that <laughs> at all. I don't need anybody to validate my humanity. I don't need any of that. However, I do know that in the best interest of this city, things have to be better because we lose too many wonderful, great professional people of color. We lose a lot of very progressive young people that are white and otherwise because people don't want to live in a, a, a hyper-segregated racist city. And I do think that things are improving. However, I think that there needs to be a different approach with agency for the people that live here because there are so many wonderful people that live in the neighborhoods who want better, who deserve better, who had better at a certain point in time. And so coming from Philadelphia and um, seeing that diverse reality, that pride, um, that it, it was a it was a breath of fresh air to be able to like just be a human being. And I'm I'm being honest because this is a this is a tough town. This is a tough town for um, black professionals. We continue to lose great talent. And I don't think it should be that way because this is a great place. This is a great town. This is home. Our families are here. And I think that we should all work together to make it better for everybody that lives here. Yeah. Well, and, and on that note of, of an equitable and inclusive Milwaukee, um, kind of circling back to uh, your award that you've won from uh, Milwaukee Magazine recognized you as one of those individuals this year that um, is working to make Milwaukee a more inclusive and an equitable city. Um, can you talk about how, how are you feeling now 
um, having that that recognition that kind of maybe I don't know if they give a physical plaque, but maybe, you know, a physical kind of representation of, you know, your love for the city? Mm. Um, Well, I was surprised um, and I definitely appreciate it very much um, because and the thing is, I'll say one of my greatest talents is the ability to bring people together. I have an amazing team. It's black, white, young and old of people who really want to work together to help to move the city forward. Then, of course, through uh, many processes, um, engaging the residents, the, the, the businesses, the churches, the stakeholders, bring the ability to bring so many people together to work on plans and ideas and see them through to fruition um, has been a wonderful thing. And so this award, while it's for me, it's, it's really for the team and the work that we do um, because there's nothing that we have done that I have achieved that hasn't been a part of a total team effort of people who are willing to give of themselves and their time um, to help move Milwaukee forward and the 30th Street Corridor in particular. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for uh, joining me on Lake Effect. I appreciate your time. Thank you. That was Cheryl Blue, Executive Director of the 30th Street Industrial Corridor. She spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods, and you can find an article about Blue and other Unity Award recipients in this month's issue of Milwaukee Magazine. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to listen to all of our shows on demand. One of Milwaukee's longest serving officials is not seeking re-election. Alderman Michael Murphy has been serving Milwaukee's 10th district since he was first elected in 1989. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll hear from Alderman Murphy about his decision not to seek re-election, as well as from some of his constituents about what it was like to have him as their alderman. With help of Michael Murphy or whatever supporting departments, we would get these things modified and changed and fixed. And that gave the people a lot of, I don't want to say power, but a lot of confidence that they had control and could make things better too. We'll have more on Alderman Murphy and share some things you'll need to know before you vote in the February primary tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.